Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Institutional thinking has no comprehension of personal loyalty. Fierce loyalty. The kind you do not get to choose. The kind you are born under. Like someone in Luke born under the authority of Zacharias. That someone doesn't get to choose another priest any more than a sheep could a shepherd, or a slave their patrician, or a Bedouin their sheikh. But in the institutionalized West, the community is a structure built around the idea that fierce personal loyalty to a tribal chief is dysfunctional. If the word community is supposed to have any connection to the biblical function, flock, then our so-called communities are no communities, because there is no possibility of a flock without a shepherd. Moreover, if the sheep are not fiercely loyal to that shepherd, they cease functioning as a flock. In Luke chapter 1, that fierce loyalty remains necessary for the biblical function, shepherd of flock, with a tiny adjustment. When Zacharias opens his mouth to speak, someone else calls the shots. That, my friends, is the meaning of John's name. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, verses 64 to 66. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 448 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Poor Zacharias. The guy has been dismantled silenced, reduced to Muppet gestures, shown to be an ineffective teacher because (laughs) the only way his people can communicate is with Muppet gestures, even though there's no indication in the text that his ears don't work. I mean, he must have wax in his ears because he refused to listen to the words of the Lord delivered by the angel Richard, but there was no indication that He was unable to hear, yet his people tried to communicate with their hands. And finally, he regurgitated what he was instructed to teach, the words of the Lord, and he wrote them down on a tablet for all to hear so that the child would be named as he was instructed. Now, you had said something earlier about the meaning of his name, And I think it's a good point in the story before we get to verse 64 to go back and once again remind ourselves 
what does Zacharias mean? Right, because there's this choice that the family, the parents make over and above what their relatives and neighbors want them to name the child. So last time I said Zachariah means the Lord is a man, the Lord is male, which is correct. But there's a homonym here. Zachar in Hebrew means male, as in a man, but it also means remember. So I think actually the name should be the Lord remembers. It can be the other, but the way that names often work is they're kind of a hope for the child or around the circumstances of the birth of the child so that the Lord might remember this child. That's why you would call the child Zachariah. Now, the fact that they decided not to call him the Lord remembers, but Yohanan means that they were thinking about the grace. I mean, they were thinking. They were told they had to name him this. But (laughs) the reason why this name is important is that the Lord shows grace. When you would enter into address the king, you would put your face on the ground. You would ask the patriarch, the king, the one in power, to show you grace. Hen. If the king or the patriarch wanted to show you grace, they would lift up your face. By lifting up your face, that was them showing you grace because they were going to entertain you and offer you an audience, meaning they would listen to you. But you did not go into the king or the patriarch assuming they were going to listen to you. We talked about work before. Every boss assumes that their people are going to come in and start talking to them about stuff, and people have no shame to go and tell their boss what they plan to do and what kind of work they want to do and what they're going to do. In the ancient world, that's not how it works. You put your face on the ground, hoping that the person will listen, okay? So when they called him, he will show grace, Yohanan. This is the grace then that the Lord is showing by lifting up the face. Instead of being the Lord remembers, it's going to be that he shows grace. And that difference I really wanted to highlight today since I didn't highlight so much last week. The Lord's action is grace. And as I mentioned before, Elizabeth speaks very little here compared to how much Mary spoke. Mary was also talking about grace, even though. Zechariah, as you said, was canceled and was not allowed to speak. The one thing that he said with words, as far as we know, was his name is John. His name is he will show grace. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he began to speak in praise of God. I want immediately to take issue with the translation of this verse. The text does not say he began to speak in praise of God. It says immediately speak praise of God. It doesn't say began. And it stands out for me, Richard, because last night in Bible study and working through Father Paul's book, Decoding Genesis, he spends a lot of time to explain the unique function of the term reshit in Hebrew. It's used three times in Genesis, once positively and twice negatively. In its positive function, Bereshit bara Elohim, in the beginning created God. 
when the word beginning or first in Genesis pertains to God, it's a positive term. It functions positively. When it pertains to a human being, it functions negatively. So the word began or begin or beginning doesn't appear anywhere in this text in Greek and would have no correspondence to the Hebrew word for beginning or first. The word here in Greek is instantly at once, parachrima, which means at once, immediately. It's not began. Zacharias is not the head. He's not beginning anything, okay? <laughs> and if he were, there would be a problem. He's not beginning to speak. He's not the first to speak. The one who speaks in Luke is the Almighty. And Zacharias was silenced and not allowed to speak because he wanted to be the one to begin to speak. So let's pay attention always to the original languages and not let anyone pull a fast one on us. And when you're reading an English translation, which really, don't say it's a translation, it's an interpretation. If you're reading an English text, you're reading an interpretation. You really are. In chapter 1 of Father Paul's Decoding Genesis, he explains how the insertion of one comma breaks down the entire meaning of Genesis 1 through 4. Actually, the insertion of one comma in chapter 2 of many translations of Genesis destroys the meaning of the first four chapters. The insertion of one comma. So please remember, when you're reading an English translation of the Bible, it's not a translation, it's somebody's interpretation. Translation is interpretation, and interpretation is the problem. My professor, Michael Fox, used to always say that, that translation is interpretation. So he always made us translate. That way he could grill us on how we were understanding the verse. He even taught the Hebrew Bible in Israel with native modern Hebrew speakers. And he would force them to translate the Old Testament into modern Hebrew. And he said, you know what they would do? They would cheat because modern Hebrew words don't always mean the same thing as their ancient equivalents. So even they were interpreting without realizing they were interpreting. And that's why he forced them to translate. He was going to push you into how you're understanding this text, what you were doing with this text, and what you were adding to it, and then question that. And it didn't matter what language you spoke. <laughs> he was going to do it. He was going to grill you on this. And he would do the same thing when he was reading the Septuagint. What is the Septuagint doing here? How are they translating? How are they interpreting? This translation is interpretation is very important. The way Luke is using this, now he's making Zechariah sound like Ezekiel. Because Ezekiel was forced not to speak until it was time to prophesy. And then he was told it's time to speak, and then his tongue was loosed in the same way as Zechariah's. So Zechariah, as you were talking before, is writing the tablet where it sounds like he's kind of Jeremiah-ish, and now he's not allowed to speak and then can speak, which is kind of more Ezekiel. So since he is a part of the priesthood, which Ezekiel was as well, we have these 
parallels with the prophets of the Hebrew Bible being manifested in the way that Zechariah is functioning. And this is a beautiful passage because we don't have anything like it in Matthew and Mark or John. This is unique to Luke. So when we understand Luke as literature, then we have to say this is beginning by already weaving in these strands of the prophets when Jesus is simply a glint in the eye of Mary and a word from the angel Gabriel. There is no Jesus on the scene here yet, but already we're weaving in these threads of the prophets. Not like John the Baptist in Mark, where you start off with John the Baptist and he goes out to the wilderness and he's prophesying. This is different. So please feel with me these threads that are coming through here as you listen to the text. Don't listen with your heart, for heaven's sake. Listen to the text with your brain and follow these threads with me. Fear came on all those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, as we hear in the wisdom literature of Scripture, the wisdom writings. It is the fear of the Lord, which is the fear of his instruction. It is the Lord's instruction that is always the distinguishing factor, the distinguishing principle. It is the Lord's instruction that is the generative principle, that is the agent in every corner of the biblical story. It is the primary actor. It is the fear of the Lord's instruction that is the source of wisdom, that is the guidepost, just like the Protestant magazine claims. Okay? This fear is produced not by Zacharias, and this is the secret sauce of the way Scripture co-ops the tribe, and it does so in a way that is impossible for Western culture because we are non-tribal. That's why we can't hear Scripture. But in a tribal setting, be it Roman or Semitic Near Eastern, you take the seat of Zacharias and you emasculate it and then you usurp the loyalty given Zacharias and you repoint it towards the scroll. But it's the same fierce loyalty that only is found, in this case, in a tribal Roman setting, but also a tribal Semitic setting. It's the same fierce loyalty. It's the same fear. Only now it's directed towards the Lord's instruction, which is the source of wisdom and life in the wilderness. And as we've already heard in the story of Elizabeth just a few verses ago, it's the tribe, a neighborhood not tied to a place. It's a nomadic neighborhood dwelling in and among the other families of the earth, finding life through its fear and submission to the instruction of wisdom. But that is produced by the words which Zacharias first rejected and now submits to and yields to and preaches, which is his 
function as patriarch, the emasculated patriarch. The loyalty to the priest and the temple, as you say, Father, has to be focused on the Lord, the one who delivers his word. This is what's so tricky. You and I were talking about this earlier, Father. The Bible assumes that human beings are loyal to something. This already makes it really hard for Americans because we think we're not loyal to things, or we think we do, but we don't know what it means because we can switch our loyalty at any time. You know, I had a friend who had a party at his house. He was a Protestant, and he had his friends from his old church as well as his new church, and he explained to them, you know, we love this church and we love you guys, but the kids went at other programs, and so we decided to go to this other church. And I thought, wait a second, like, you just changed one community to the other just like that? You just went from one to the other? In his mind, he's loyal. He's loyal to God. He's not loyal to one church or another, right? But unless you're loyal to a tribe, like, none of the rest works. And for Americans, we all came here, either brought here or uh, by our own volition, because we were ready to give up that loyalty in some respect in order to go and forge our own way. Now, Native Americans are different because they had no interest in separating themselves to the tribe, so therefore the tribes were broken up from the outside. And yet they kept that loyalty, and that's why they still exist and they still live and they still call themselves according to their tribe. Because that's what they've always been. In the early 20th century, we wanted Americans to have loyalty to the United States. So that's how we would build things with the Pledge of Allegiance and the flag and all this kind of stuff. Then scripture says, all those things you're loyal to don't mean anything. You must be loyal to God and loyal to his word and ready to do his word. And in my work in Hosea, the land doesn't know how to be loyal. The land thinks that sometimes Baal fertilizes her and sometimes Yahweh fertilizes her, depending on who she's on good terms with. And Yahweh says, you know what? Actually, I'm the only one who's ever fertilized you. And it wasn't because you were on good terms with me. I did it even when you were messing up and doing the wrong thing. I was still giving you life. I was still allowing the crops of the field to grow, even though you were terribly disloyal. But there's only one point of loyalty that matters. You can't switch loyalties. It doesn't work. This is not Tinder. <laughs> this is a marriage. You have one loyalty, whereas these people in the story are loyal to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the priesthood, to the sacrifices, whatever. The Lord says, you know what? I'm going to send Gabriel and remind them that they have one loyalty, and it's to me. And if they need the priest to stop speaking and to stop doing priestly things and just walking around so that they remember whenever they see this mute priest that it's about me, let them know about me, because I am the only correct object of their loyalty. But hey, American friends, if you don't know what loyalty actually means to have this kind of fear, like you said, Father, if you don't know this kind of fear of what would happen if you were disloyal, then there's no real loyalty. The point of the tribe is that you need the tribe to survive. Everybody has to do their part. No one is allowed to be lazy. No one is allowed to be selfish. You must be generous and hardworking. That's the only way. Because you fear what would happen. The worst thing that can happen in the Old Testament is that you're cut off. That's the worst thing that can happen. I remember this way back in OT 101 with Father Paul. The tribe cutting you off means you die. This is 
the fear. So when the people see that this Zechariah now speaks, when they go against what they wished, they went from marveling to fear. And there's one critical point about the tribal setting that no parish council in North America will ever grasp, understand, adopt, or embody. They love that word embody in Hellenistic society. You cannot, as an individual, tell the tribe what you have to offer it. The tribe will demand of you what the tribe requires. And there is no thanking you for what it requires because the tribe is not made up of individuals. The tribe is a body. Just read scripture. Does the hand thank the elbow for its service? (laughs) All who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. I paused, Richard, once again at those ugly, ugly italics in the English interpretation of the Greek, because nowhere in the Greek text does it say, turn out to. It's, what then will this child be? I'm not sure why the translators wanted to insert turn out to be. Maybe they were studying child psychology and felt that it was about child development and wondering what the child would grow up to be. I don't know. Who knows what they were thinking? The point is, the people interpreting this text are not Luke or the group of people writing Luke whom we call Luke. It doesn't really matter. They're not the authors. They have no right to put words in Luke's mouth. Luke is telling us that the people are afraid. They're afraid of this child as well they should be because the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. In some manuscripts, it's the people say, what manner of child will this be for the hand of the Lord was with him, which sounds like the people are saying the whole thing. But there are other ones that say, what manner of child will this be because the hand of the Lord was with them, meaning like it's a separate clause, like the narrator is saying that. The question is, are the people recognizing that the hand of the Lord is with him, and that's why they're asking the question? Or are they asking the questions just because they're like, whoa, what's going on? What kind of kid is this? He's not named Zechariah. He's named John. And this miracle happened where this guy couldn't speak, and now he can speak. And the narrator is giving us a little bit of insight, saying, you know, the hand of the Lord was with him. Rich, this is another example where punctuation, in this case, potentially by a copyist, is interpretation. It's just like what we were saying about Genesis 1 through 4 and Father Paul's decoding Genesis. The insertion or deletion of a close quote after the phrase, will this child be in the Greek, changes the meaning of the phrase. This is what scholars have to do, is they have to look at the different manuscripts and weigh which one makes the most sense. Should there be the four in there, or should there not be the four in there? And some have it, some don't. And once you put the four, then you add this causal relationship between one and the other. 
So is it saying from now on, the hand of the Lord is with him? Or is it saying the reason why they're asking the question is because the hand of the Lord was with them? We don't know. On the surface, you have to dig in and you really have to do that work. This is why we end up trusting our translation, because they are doing work that we have a hard time doing. But this is the challenge. Don't take scholars for granted. Do the work so that you can learn what they're doing and at least follow the argument. I don't have access to these manuscripts. Greg Paulson, our friend, he's a text critic. He knows all about this. That's what he does for a living. He could give us a long lecture on whether there should be a four in here or not, depending on which manuscripts it appears in. I'm not qualified to do that, but I can say at least there's a question here that we have to interpret. We have to interpret. But when we interpret, we do have to interpret with fear and trembling because it's no longer the text itself. We have to be making a decision about the text, which we must take very seriously because the text must always stand above us when we're reading it, even when it's difficult for us to understand and we have to make a decision. That's why my professor waited for us to make an interpretation and a translation, and he was always hanging over us with a heavy fist if we did it wrong or if we couldn't justify ourselves. Well, and one last point, Rich. Something like this you can write down in your notebook and keep reading. Sometimes a left or a right decision on something like verse 66 does not necessarily have significant impact on the overall hearing of a passage. But in the case of Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, the addition or removal of a comma can change the entire structure of the section. So the important thing is to notice these things, make note of them, and keep reading, keep hearing Scripture, because you won't understand the significance until you've heard the entire story. That's the other thing. We can't figure out the significance by ruminating on verse 66. We have to hear the entire New Testament. We have to hear all of Luke and then some and go back and reconsider with a broader data set. It's a lot of work. It takes time, and there are no easy answers. The important thing is to notice and to take note and to keep working. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.